morning, everyone, and thank you for joining. I'm Sinai Halameen, founder of the Windacre Partnership, and I welcome the chance to share our view of Nielsen and its intrinsic value with you. Before I begin, I'd encourage you to read our full disclaimers, which will be available in our presentation on this same webcast link after my webcast. I would stress these are strictly our views and beliefs, and because intrinsic value is inherently future-looking, most of what we discuss is forward-looking with all the risks and uncertainties associated with that. Who are we? We're a concentrated, long-only firm focused primarily on owning world-class businesses. We are purely intrinsic value-based investors, not relative value or not thematic. I recognize that intrinsic value may seem like an academic concept, but I would say over my multi-decade career, I found no better way, no more reliable way of predicting where share prices will be long-term than estimating intrinsic value. And we operate with the mindset of a true long-term owner. When we make an investment, we assume we're gonna own that investment for 10 years plus. We're not an activist firm. We've never desired to be public or to be known. And with respect to Nielsen, we first invested in Nielsen in 2013. We currently own 27%, making us Nielsen's largest shareholder. And we have posed to take private of Nielsen at $28 per share. Why? Because we believe Nielsen has an unmatched ability to solve the hardest measurement problem in media. This to us makes Nielsen a world-class business. We estimate its intrinsic value today at around $50 per share. And we believe there's a credible path to an $80 stock value by 2025, so 3x in three years. And $28 per share isn't even close to recognizing that value. Why is Nielsen a world-class business? The reason we start here is because we believe the business is totally misunderstood. The narrative around the business is that it's going to be disintermediated, that we're moving, from a, moving to a competitive multi-currency future, and the business has been valued as such. We totally disagree. And because the quality of the business is central to our thesis, we're gonna spend a good 20 or 30 minutes diving deeply into this question. When we're trying to evaluate whether something's a world-class business ourselves, we typically ask a few questions. First, how difficult is the problem this business is trying to solve? Second, at what scale can it solve that problem? Those two questions together can give us a sense for how much value is being created by this business. And then third, how uniquely does the business solve the problem? Airlines, for example, solve an incredibly difficult problem at huge scale, but make no money. Google Search, on the other hand, solves an incredibly difficult problem at scale, but does it uniquely, and as a result, is one of the world's most valuable businesses. So what is the measurement problem here, and why is it so hard? It's hard because of the sheer scale of these numbers. 300 million people in the US watching video across 900 million screens for nearly 600 billion hours a year. And it's hard because what you wanna measure at the end of the day is not the machines, it's the people. It's not the machines that make the purchases, it's not the machines that buy the soap, it's the people. And as we've studied this problem, it's become clear to us, and I think the industry as a whole, that it requires big data and a panel. Why big data? Because it's impossible to measure 300 million people and 900 million screens with a panel alone. You need the big data input. But you also need the panel because again, the big data just measures the machines. At some point you have to translate that machine data into what actual people are doing. And the analogy we draw here is trying to measure the US population. There's plenty of big data available, credit card data, banking data, mobile phone data, that might be able to give you a sense for the size of the US population, but each one of those data sets has inherent selection problems with it, right? Not everyone has a phone, not everyone has a bank account, et cetera. And so we still rely, as antiquated as it, as it may seem, we still rely on people going door to door every 10 years to figure out what the true population of the country is, right? If you're gonna make a decision as important as how many elected officials should a state or a locality have, you wanna make sure you get that right. Right? And the panel is the equivalent of that census. It may seem antiquated, but it's absolutely essential for decisions that are as big as how do you spend $100 billion on advertising a year and where should it go? And so as we've studied Nielsen over the past few years, it's become clear to us that 
in order to evaluate the competitive landscape, we really need to do it along these two axes. How robust is the panel, and what is the big data coverage? And so we've taken a shot here at you know, putting um, the competitive landscape together, right? showing where we believe, and this is inherently subjective, but where we believe the primary competitors to Nielsen sit, both along the big data coverage axis and along the panel axis. And two things become clear to us. First, the big data axis is relatively competitive. We believe Nielsen is the leader. We believe Nielsen has the most uh, coverage of big data. Um, but it's not alone on this axis, and others are close. The other thing that becomes clear is on the panel axis, no one is close, right? Nielsen sits in a position by itself. And this leads to a very common critique, which is, who cares about the panel access? Right? The panel was a way to measure TV effectively in the 1980s, but it's antiquated. Right? There's no way that you can measure, again, 300 million people watching across 900 million screens with a panel of 41,000 households. And so who cares about that access? The future is the big data access, and you can see that that access is competitive. And that leads to the common critique of Nielsen, which is we are moving into a multi-currency world where there are several big, datas that are big data players that are viable, um, and so Nielsen's market position is going to erode. We agree, actually, on both of these points that the panel itself is outdated, and we agree big data is fairly competitive, but we think what all of this misses, again, is that you need to combine the two to be an effective measurement player in this ecosystem. And this isn't just Windacre's supposition. You'll see on this next chart that all of the, the major big data players have either developed their own panel or teamed up with a third-party panel provider like T-Vision so that they can complete their measurement offering. At the end of the day, measurement isn't about machines, it's about people. We aren't measuring this ecosystem for kicks. We're measuring so advertisers know who is watching so they know where to advertise. And we have to remember at all times that measuring machines can be a proxy for measuring people, but it's not the same thing. And so when you look in, at Nielsen 1 and its potential, which is the combination of Nielsen's big data assets and Nielsen's panel, you see that Nielsen sits alone in this competitive landscape. And it sits alone, again, not because of its big data asset, which we think is the leading asset um, in this ecosystem, but it sits alone mostly because its panel is unmatched. I want to spend a minute on why Nielsen's panel is so robust and why it's so hard to compete with. Look, from our work, we believe Nielsen's panel is probably the most robust panel in the world. The numbers here are clear, right, how Nielsen stacks up versus the competitor that's most often cited uh, as a panel competitor, T-Vision. And we'd say is, you know, T-Vision has cool technology. It's an interesting business. But the technology that it uses, which is a camera, that points out from the TV to you in your living room so it can track who's watching, that inherently has scale limitations. It inherently has selection bias issues, right? Not every demographic is going to be comfortable with a camera pointed out from their TV into their living room. Not many people are going to be comfortable with a camera pointed out from their TV to their master bedroom or a camera pointed out from the TV into their kids' rooms or into guest rooms. And this is clear, right, in T-Vision's own data. They have a panel size that's 5,000 households, which on its face is one-eighth the size of Nielsen. It's a respectable size for a panel. When you look at the comparable size, right, Nielsen measures in the 41,000 households all the TVs in those households. T-Vision has only gotten acceptance to measure all the TVs in 5% of its panel households for reasons that we think are obvious. Again, not everyone wants a camera pointed out from their TV into their master bedroom. T-Vision's panel is also not designed to be representative of the population, and Nielsen's panel is. Right? Nielsen takes the, the, the census data and creates a panel that's reflective of the total U.S. population by demographic. And so the punchline is Nielsen's panel ends up costing hundreds of millions of dollars a year to maintain, and T-Vision's panel, we estimate, costs about a million dollars a year to maintain. So T-Vision's biggest advantage is its low-cost position, but as we'll discuss further, in the presentation, the foundation, foundational currencies that exist in different ecosystems don't exist because of the lowest cost player. They exist because 
they're the most universally accepted because they have the most capabilities. This is not a low cost game. This is a capability game. What we'd say is on the cost side, you know, one analogy might be to think of, you know, a bicycle versus a car. A bicycle is 95% cheaper than a car. You know, in spirit, it does essentially the same thing, which is get you from point A to point B. But it would be a mistake to confuse a bicycle for a car. This chart uh, highlights this issue in, in kind of a different way, um, which is, you know, if you want to go down the big data coverage axis, that's relatively cheap. Right? We estimate it's tens of millions of dollars a year to be competitive in the big data sphere. And that's part of the reason that we saw there were a bunch of competitors clumped up against Nielsen in the big data access. The panel access is very hard and very expensive to climb. Right? And that's why we think you don't see any competitors anywhere near Nielsen. Right? It would be an investment of hundreds of millions of dollars a year to try to compete with Nielsen. So what we'd say here is data is easy, but panel is hard, but both are required, right? Again, if you want to reach that holy grail spot, which is have big data coverage, but be able to translate that into what actual humans are doing, you have to get down both of these axes, and only Nielsen can do that. And so what we'd say is, you know, the big data is where the battles are that we hear about, right? iSpot, VideoAmp, et cetera. But it's our contention that the world be won here by whoever has the best panel. Of course, this is a static look at the ecosystem. And the question that we always ask is, what about the future? Can others close the gap? And we'd say, look, it seems very, very hard for that to be the case. Right? So we've put on this chart the resources defined differently, revenues, headcount, the right headcount, data scientists, market value, you know, to give a sense of you know, what resources can the competitors throw against this problem to try to be effective measurement players, to try to compete against Nielsen? And what's clear to us is Nielsen dwarfs the competitors and the resources available to solve this problem. And then as we mentioned, there are fundamental limitations of the technologies that other people are using, which are gonna create sample set issues or gonna create sample bias issues, um, as we discussed. Now, of course, we're talking about Nielsen One, and Nielsen One isn't even out yet, right? So there's always the question of how can we get comfortable with the potential of Nielsen One when we haven't even seen it, right? And certainly not in its full form. I'd say this is true. We haven't seen it. But sometimes logic can foretell the answer. For example, if Amazon enters a new vertical, you can analyze, actually, with the scale that Amazon brings, with the competitive advantages that it has, with the resources that it has, whether it can or cannot be effective wherever it's going next. And we think the same is true here, right? So again, advertisers care about people, not machines. And Nielsen's panel provides an unmatched ability to translate from those machines to people. And the example I'll use is, is the classic big data problem here, which is set-top box data. Right. Again, if you are an advertiser, you care about who is watching programming. And so let's think about how you translate set-top box data into that. The set-top box may be on, right? So that's sending you a signal that someone is watching X, y, or y, X or Y programming. Right? The set-top box may be on, but the TV may not be on. Right? So it could be, in reality, no one is watching. Or the set-top box could be on, and the TV could be on, but there's no one in the room. Right? Or there could be someone in the room, but you don't know who it is. And of course, you know, a 13-year-old girl versus her mother have two very different values to an advertiser, right? This problem, this translation problem between the data the set-top box is sending back, which is, you know, I am streaming X programming right now versus who in the room is actually watching, that's a problem that Nielsen's panel solves, and it has an unmatched ability to do that. Advertisers care about reach and frequency across the entire ecosystem. And again, only Nielsen's panel is representative of the entire population demographic of the US. You also want to be able to measure over-the-air households, right, which are 20% of consumption and growing. Again, only Nielsen's panel allows you to do that. We don't think anyone has more trust and more partnerships in this ecosystem than Nielsen, and that's essential to deduplicate. And then there are other assets like an ID backbone, for example, that you need, which Nielsen has with Nielsen ID. 
And we contend that you have to be an independent third party to be the foundational currency for this ecosystem. This ecosystem is $100 billion and it's not gonna transact off of people's own designed currencies um, because the problems with that are obvious. It's somewhat akin to, to grading your own homework. And I wouldn't underestimate the fact that Nielsen has been the currency in this ecosystem for decades and what that means in, some, in terms of it being the trusted provider of this data for this ecosystem. Now, of course, this is Windacre's view, but Windacre doesn't get to decide who the currency will be. Um, so who will decide? The advertisers, right? The advertisers sit at the top of this ecosystem. And here is a, a comment from the Association of National Advertisers, uh, which is a trade group of advertisers that we think sums up very clearly what advertisers want. Right, they want to understand reach and frequency, right? That is the foundational metric that they want to understand. And they want to understand it not within a silo, not within a platform, and not within a TV network. They want to understand it across all of media. Now, of course, that isn't what we hear most commonly today. That isn't the critique of Nielsen. Um, and so we'd highlight that, you know, most often the critique of Nielsen comes from people that are not the advertisers, right? It's coming from the people that don't get to decide who the currency is. It's coming largely from media companies and largely a subset of media companies that are legacy media companies that may not be that well positioned for the future of where this ecosystem is going. And so we'd highlight here a few areas, and I'm gonna spend time on two in particular, where we think the media companies and advertisers are in direct conflict with what they want and what they need. And that's why they lead to two very different narratives about how the future of this ecosystem should evolve, whether we should have a multi-currency world or a single foundational, foundational currency system. The one is deduplication, right? What is deduplication? Again, advertiser does not want to hit you eight times with the same commercial because it's annoying for you and it destroys brand value for them, right? They would much rather hit four people twice than one person eight times. And so that's deduplication, the ability to, to deduplicate how many people have been reached uh, with a single advertisement. Now that's what an advertiser wants, but of course deduplication is revenue for the, ad, for the media company, right? So any ad that gets paid for is revenue for the media company. And so an advertiser's waste is a media company's revenue and so you could see how those two would be at odds with each other, right? In terms of how, how much do you want in a currency system that allows deduplication? There's also kind of the special snowflake syndrome, right? Which is media companies want their content to seem unique, for their audiences to seem unique, their audiences are undervalued, et cetera. And advertisers want the ability to compare across the entire ecosystem. Right. You could imagine how an advertiser is not that interested in NBC coming to them saying, here's how special our audience is, and then CBS coming and saying the same thing, and then ABC coming and saying the same thing, et cetera. It makes it very hard to transact. You need a common set of standards so that you can compare across all of these different ecosystems. Right? It's the reason we have standardized tests in a wide variety of different ecosystems across academics, et cetera. You need some basis be able to compare on a standard basis across the entire ecosystem. And so that's why we believe that advertisers want a foundational system-wide currency with additional analytics, additional data that'll help them make better decisions. That's a very different picture from what the media companies are talking about, which is, you know, pick your own currency, essentially. Now, I don't want to get too deep into the semantics here of whether we're gonna have a single currency or multi-currency future. By some definition, we will have a multi-currency future. And what do I mean by that? You know, there will be some contracts somewhere that use someone other than Nielsen as the currency, right? So by that definition, we will end up in a multi-currency future, but I think it's important to keep in context what that means, right? If we asked people, what is the currency in the US? I think everyone would say it's the dollar. But technically, the U.S. is also a multi-currency system, right? There are a wide variety, probably hundreds of different ways that you can transact in the U.S. outside of dollars, right? There's cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Starbucks points, Amex points, the different community currencies, airline miles to buy tickets. So in niche use cases, you actually do have 
a variety of different ways that you can make purchases outside of the dollar. What's clear is these niche use cases, these other currencies, don't inter disintermediate the dollar. In fact, most of these end up being translated back to dollars in the first place. Right? How do you know the value of a Bitcoin? We quote it in dollars. Right? And that backtesting phenomenon is also happening in the media ecosystem. People might be trialing other currencies, but they backtested against Nielsen. Right? And the reason they backtested against Nielsen is Nielsen is the trusted provider of this data. And so I'd say even though people may talk about a multi-currency future, even though people may be trialing different currencies and different niche use cases, it's very important to understand that in the U.S., the dollar is still the true foundational currency of our economy, and we believe Nielsen will still be the true foundational currency in the media ecosystem. Now, why do we have a foundational currency? I think this quote from Group M makes it very clear why certain ecosystems evolve to having foundational currencies, right? which is you can't have six different currencies making these decisions. Right? We can imagine a world where if every time you made a purchase, you have to choose between one of six different currencies. Right? Each one of those different currencies has a different economic effect for you and for the seller of the product. That would be an incredibly inefficient and impractical ecosystem to try to operate in. Right? There's a reason that the U.S. went to a single currency instead of different state currencies. There's a reason why Europe went to the euro instead of different country currencies. Right? You need a foundational currency that everyone uses, everyone transacts on, that everyone accepts the value for, for an ecosystem to operate efficiently. Right? And that has been Nielsen. And again, we think we'll continue to be Nielsen. Now, because the market has struggled, we think, with this concept and with understanding the distinction in this ecosystem between a foundational currency and someone that provides data and analytics, we've taken a shot here at what we view as analogies um, of foundational currency type of market positions in other ecosystems, right? In the equity market, the bond market, in the credit score market, economic data, right? And what you'll see for all of these is there's a universal acceptance, kind of a single source, source of truth for what is a foundational currency, right? So when we talk about the U.S. equity market, by and large, we're talking about the S&P 500, right? That doesn't mean that there aren't research providers that can help you make better decisions about what stocks to own, et cetera. When we talk about the market, it's important that we're all talking generally about the same thing, right? Which is, what did the S&P 500 do? In the bond market, again, Moody's and S&P ratings, right? It's important that people are able to talk about credit risk across the entire economy in a common language. And that's what the S&P and Moody's bond ratings do, right? Same for credit scores. Right. We use FICO scores as, to give us a sense, again, across a wide range of credit, kind of what someone's credit score is, what their credit risk is. Economic data, you know, the official GDP data. Right. Imagine a world where we didn't have official GDP data, where hundreds of different economic houses, research providers, were each providing their own distinct view of what the U.S. economy was doing. It would be chaos. Now, that doesn't mean that for some niche application, there aren't other data sets in addition to GDP data that might be valuable for you, right? So if you were invested in an apparel retailer and you want to know week to week, you know, how consumers were spending on apparel, you know, buying credit card data might really be valuable, right? And it might be more valuable in short periods of time, actually, than, than GDP data. But one shouldn't confuse the two, right? You're not going to be able, over time, to get a sense for what's happening from the U.S. economy from credit card data. Right? Not all consumers have a credit card, and not all of GDP is consumer. And so the same thing applies, we think, in media. You need one foundational system to be able to say how wide was the reach for this programming and how many distinct people did this programming hit. Um, and then you have a bunch of other data and analytics providers that will help advertisers the same way credit card data or sell-side research helps investors make decisions that does not, does not, again, disintermediate the foundational currency in the, the ecosystem. In summary, say we believe Nielsen has an unmatched capability here to solve the hardest problem in media. We believe the advertisers know that, that's what they want, and at the end of the day, they are the ones that will decide. 
We think this results in Nielsen 1 being the foundational currency for this ecosystem. And that to us, again, makes Nielsen a world-class business. When you solve a really difficult problem and you solve it at scale and you solve it uniquely, to us that is all the hallmarks of being a world-class business. All right, what is Nielsen worth? So we're going to start with what we call the status quo case. Right? This is three and a half times net debt to EBITDA leverage, which is the current leverage that the business has. It allows for a buyback of about $725 million, well within the range of the billion dollars that the company has already announced. We then keep leverage pegged at that three and a half times level. Uh, what the only comment I make here is keeping leverage pegged is essentially keeping the financial risk profile of the business constant. We assume in all the analysis that we're going to share with you today that the future distributions to shareholders, so from 2023 on, are all in the form of dividends. To be clear, we think it's almost a certainty that buybacks would be preferable, would create more intrinsic value than dividends. But for the sake of simplicity for this presentation, all future distributions to shareholders are assumed to be dividends here. And then in terms of operating assumptions, we start in 2022 using the midpoint of the company's guidance. And then we grow revenue in a range of 3 to 5%. So we run different scenarios, which we'll share with you. We have incremental margins of 55%, except in the 3% revenue growth case, we keep margins flat. And we have CapEx, the capital intensity of the business, so CapEx revenue declining to 7.5%, which is what the company has said publicly should happen longer term. The one thing I would stress here is the midpoint of our operating assumptions is a 4% organic revenue growth, 55% incremental margins, and against CapEx fading to 7.5% of revenue. Those are the same assumptions that we used internally pre-deal, right? So we are not embellishing in any way presentation here from what we believed and continue to believe about this business and believed even before we had any knowledge of this transaction. So we then put those numbers into a DCF framework, the 10-year DCF of distributable free cash flow. Distributable free cash flow is the, the cash the business generates that it can distribute to shareholders, including the cash from keeping the leverage pegged at three and a half times, right? So when EBITDA grows and you keep the leverage pegged, that gives you additional cash that you can distribute to shareholders. We use a 10% cost of equity and a terminal growth rate we use the revenue growth rate, which we think is a particularly conservative assumption because cash flow should grow faster than revenue because of future operating leverage and because of the financial leverage. But for conservatism, we assume terminal growth, i.e. the growth in 10 years of the business, to be equal to the revenue growth in these various cases. And the result is, in what we call our base case, 4% revenue growth, an intrinsic value of $52 a share. Now, we recognize $52 a share may sound crazy, right? The stock was at $17.51 not that long ago. And so we lay out here exactly what the cash flows are that are being discounted. And I'd note we have a similar slide to this in the appendix of the presentation for all of the scenarios that we discuss. So you'll be able to see exactly what the cash flows are, and you'll be able to reconcile to those numbers yourself. Now, we show the adjusted earnings here, as the company defined. I want to make very clear that that's not the number that we end up discounting, actually. We make adjustments to the company defined adjusted EPS. For example, we treat stock comp, even though it's non-cash, we treat it as a cash expense. We treat restructuring as a cash expense. We then add, once we convert adjusted EPS to a true cash flow per share, we then add the debt capacity that the business has that grows, keeping leverage pegged, right? So for those familiar with Transdime or John Malone or Charter, kind of this is the capital structure model that they use. And what you can see here is in 2023, this business has the ability to, to distribute $3 of cash per share to shareholders in this case, and that grows over the next decade to $4.50. So I want to drill further into what I believe is the most significant operating assumption that we use, and then spend some time on the multiple. 
right? Because the analysis here does imply a re-rating of the business, and we think it's worth discussing how we get comfortable with that. So why do we believe in our base case that revenue here should grow 4%? I would actually say that we believe revenue growth should be north of 4%. And I think one way to frame that is how should revenue growth look relative to GDP? So we assume long-term in the U.S. nominal GDP growth of 4%, essentially 2% real, 2% inflation. And as we look at the various puts and takes, we think there are more puts than takes, i.e. more things that should cause Nielsen to outgrow nominal GDP than to undergrow nominal GDP. And the things that would cause it to undergrow, right, the areas of the media ecosystem that are lo losing viewership, that are in decline, or at best, kind of flat, audio, long tail cable, local, these have been drags on growth and will continue for some period to be drags on growth, but we note that they are diminishing, right, as those underlying parts of the media ecosystem decline, right? They will diminish as a drag over time. And so again, as we look at the puts and takes here, to us, it seems like this is a north of 4% organic grower. We'd also note that relative to history, 4% seems relatively conservative. This business has grown pre-COVID an average of over 4%. And here we're looking at the media business, right, or what used to be the legacy watch business. And we've tried to back out the major acquisitions that we could identify, right? So we're trying to get this as close to an organic growth rate as we can do from the reported data. We'd also note here that we are including in this the performance of the business all the way to 2019, right? So this is a growth rate pre-COVID. Um, but even in 2017, 2018, and 2019, you can see there were very specific, we think revenue quality-related issues, GDPR-related issues, right, the privacy regulation that caused this business to suffer, and we're including that, and even with that, to us, it looks like this business has grown north of 4% historically. I think another way to look at this would be to say, you know, the business is essentially a toll-taker of sorts on the, the TV and the video, the premium video ad ecosystem. Right, and this is one view of that ad ecosystem from eMarketer, right? And we can see you know, this ad ecosystem is expected to grow, again, north of 4% in the future, and it's actually an acceleration versus history. The last thing I would note here is you know, 4% would be the low end of management's stated view, right, that this business should grow mid-single digit, right, which is organic growth of 4 to 6%. So our base case of 4% we view as being at the low end of what management is communicating as the growth potential of this business. Now moving to the multiple. We don't input a terminal multiple into our DCF. The terminal multiple is derived by our cost of equity assumption, which again, 10%, and the terminal growth rate, which we sensitize between three and 5%. So here we're showing the base case, which is the 4% terminal revenue growth rate. That implies that the fair multiple is 17 times the cash flow that the business can distribute to shareholders. And that's what leads to the $52 value. Now, one can look and say, okay, that makes sense, but that implies a 24 times PE multiple and a 14 times EBITDA multiple. And aren't those high? Right, so I wanna spend a minute on this topic. Like we'd say, the reason those multiples seem high is they reflect the enormous cash generating power of this business, right? So as we said, this business, we think starting in 2023, can distribute $3, growing to $4.50 over the next decade of cash to shareholders, right? That's the cash flow stream that we are entitled to. That's the cash flow stream that we should discount. And so we wanted to stress test this against different prices that are relevant here, right? So let's stress test it against the $18 unaffected price, right, pre the deal leak. So if the business distributes $3 per share and it does it in the form of a dividend, right, which as we say, that's, that's our assumption here for the sake of simplicity, we think a buyback would be even more valuable. But if the business started distributing $3, in, $3 per share in cash next year and the stock went back to $18, that would be a 17% dividend yield. We simply don't believe Nielsen is going to trade at a 17% dividend yield. Take 
today's price, or the take private price, $28 per share, that would imply an 11% dividend yield. Again, we simply don't believe Nielsen is going to trade at an 11% dividend yield. This is a growing business, right, where that dividend is going to grow from $3 to $4.50 over the next decade. We don't know of another business in the market that has that growth dynamic that's trading at 11% dividend yield. In fact, we'd say it's worth looking at it the other way, which is how much higher can the share price get, right? In a market where the S&P is offering a sub 2% dividend yield, not implausible that Nielsen trades to a 5% dividend yield, right? Which again, $3 per share would be the dividend. And that implies a $60 share price. I'd say to us, it seems far more likely that Nielsen trades at a 5% dividend yield than Nielsen trades at a 17% dividend yield or even an 11% dividend yield. Now, as we stated up front, we are not relative value investors, but we understand that a lot of people are, and so we took a shot at looking at what the relative values imply for Nielsen. So we put together a set of info services peers because we firmly believe that's the, the peer set for Nielsen. And what we observed is they grow at a faster rate on average than Nielsen, right? So this peer group grows from 2022 to 2025, based on consensus numbers, grows 7%. So we ran a regression so that we would be able to adjust the multiples down for the growth rate that we use, the growth rate range of 3 to 5% that we use in the case of Nielsen. And what that implies, again, using the 4% base case, 4% revenue growth base case, is that the PE multiple should be in the low 20s and the EV EBITDA multiple should be in the mid-teens. This is the same conclusion from our intrinsic value work, right, which says the EBITDA multiple should be in the mid-teens and the PE in the low 20s, right? So we'd look at this and say both the intrinsic value work that we do and the relative value work as indicated by the Info Services peer group both point to the same thing, which is this is a business that deserves to trade in the mid-teens on an EV EBITDA multiple and 20-plus times on a PE basis. Now, a common rebuttal to this would be, well, that's all great, but that's not how this business is traded, right? And to some extent, that's true, right? We note, though, that Nielsen did historically trade pretty much in line with the Info Services peers. As we said, it does undergrow, and so it does deserve to trade and did deserve to trade historically at a slight discount to those Info Services peers. You can see that it was pretty close to trading in line with Info Services peers until Nielsen started having company-specific issues, right? Started with GDPR, there were other revenue quality issues that the business started to face in that 2017-2018 timeframe, all of which we believe are resolved. This business is now back to growing mid-single digit. You can see as a result of those issues and as a result of this narrative that the business is going to get disintermediated, Nielsen decoupled from Info Services at the same time, unfortunately, that the Info Services peers re-rated up and now trades in line with ad agencies, right, which, you know, do have true long-term terminal risk issues, right, which, again, we believe Nielsen doesn't. Now, we've been an investor in Nielsen for many years, and so we dissected this history even further, right, to the glory years and what we're going to call the troubled years. Right. So during the glory years, what you see is this business actually did trade at a fairly healthy EV EBITDA multiple, 13 times. Right. The business was performing. The average growth rate in that period, this is 2014 to 2016, was 4%. It distributed a fair amount of cash to shareholders Right. on average over that period, $2.20 a share. And the average stock price during that time was $39. Not bad. Right. And then you hit the troubled years, right? 2017 to 2021. And yes, the business derated, but the business performance was pretty poor, right? So the average growth rate in there was very close to zero, right? The, it, the business did not distribute much cash to shareholders. And as a result, the stock derated, right, from an average of 13 times to nine times. Now, it is our contention that those problems have been fixed, and our status quo looks much more like the glory of Right? Average revenue growth of 4%. We believe 
as we said, the business can start distributing to shareholders north of $3 per share. That implies to us that the stock on average over the next few years should trade at a $57 share price or 14 times EV EBITDA. Again, if you look at our base case versus the glory years, say they're not that, that dissimilar. When the business was working, the stock worked also. We took a, a, a further look at history because the business as it stands today is actually not the business that was trading publicly in the markets historically, right? For those that are familiar, this used to, Nielsen used to have two businesses, what used to be called Buy and Watch, and it divested that Buy business a couple of years ago. And so we thought it would be interesting to try to remove that Buy business, which got sold at six times EV EBITDA. So if we remove that, and look at what was the implied multiple of the media business, which is all of what Nielsen is today, historically, again, what you see is that media business did seem to trade on an implied basis, did seem to trade close to 15 to 16 times EV EBITDA. So all of this, the intrinsic value work, the relative value work, looking at you know when the, the business was performing, how the stock traded, what EV EBITDA multiple it's traded at historically, when it was the clean media business. Um, all this to us says, you know, this business has traded at a reasonable multiple. It should trade at a reasonable multiple. It can trade at a reasonable multiple. And we think it will actually trade at a reasonable multiple. And what is a reasonable multiple here? I think a mid-teens EV EBITDA multiple, right? All the intrinsic value and the relative work value work points to that. And at 20 plus times PE multiple. Now, why doesn't it trade like that today? You know, this business is undergoing kind of several different angles of disruption. That disruption does lead to uncertainty. But we'd argue that uncertainty leads to a low valuation, but that's also the opportunity, right? So the different sources of disruption here, I mean, obviously the underlying ecosystem is going through an unprecedented disruption as our viewership is fragmenting, as the models are moving from the classic linear TV model to over-the-top models to non-ad-supported models like Netflix. The business is undergoing the most significant product and business transformation probably in its history, right, as it moves its currency from the legacy C3, C7 to Nielsen 1, as it divested its legacy buy business. I'd say in general, this has been an underappreciated business in terms of business quality. And then it's facing a severe regulatory and customer challenge, right? And by regulatory challenge here, I'm referring to the MRC accreditation, right? The MRC being kind of the quasi-regulator for Nielsen. And the customer challenge, as we well know, right, from the likes of NBC and Discovery who have been very vocal uh, as critics of Nielsen. So we understand the disruption here, and we understand the uncertainty. What we'd observe, though, is that there have been situations similar to this for other companies. And in general, as that disruption has clarified, right, and as people have gotten comfortable with the quality of the underlying businesses, the stocks in general have re-rated, right? So Google had de-rated when there was concern about Google Search's role in the new mobile ecosystem, right? Microsoft and Adobe derated as people were concerned about what a transition to a cloud business model would mean, right? Moody's derated post-global financial crisis when people were concerned about whether the issuer pay model would survive, right? Or whether that would get regulated away. Similarly with Visa, with the Durban Amendment, where there was concern about whether the economics of the card networks were going to get regulated, or Transdime during the short attack a few years ago. Right, so all of these businesses have derated, but they re-rated back up once it became clear what the quality of the business was, once it became clear that these businesses were not going to get disintermediated. And we believe the exact same is true for Nielsen. So we wouldn't be surprised if the Nielsen multiple doubled over the next few years. In fact, we'd probably be shocked if it didn't. So we'd summarize this as saying, look, the status quo case is status quo. What we mean by that is there's nothing particularly bold or inspiring about this case. It is literally 
running at what we think is the low end of what management is saying this business can perform at on a revenue growth basis and distributing and keeping the leverage pegged at three and a half times, which is where the leverage is today, and distributing that cash out to shareholders. You know, that results in an intrinsic value of about $50 per share. As we've said, it allows the business to start distributing $3, growing to $4.50 over the next decade. And so all of that leads us to the conclusion, why would we sell this at 28? I want to move forward and present a bolder and even more compelling case. This is the public LBO case, right? And the primary difference here is this has a significant recap to five and a half times net debt to EBITDA. That allows, together with the 2022 free cash flow, for $3.8 billion to be redeployed, which at $28 would be a 37% buyback. Similar to the status quo case, we then keep leverage pegged, and all the other assumptions here are the same as the status quo case, right? Future distributions beyond the 2022 buyback in the form of dividend, and the same operating assumptions that we use in the status quo case. Now, what is the immediate impact of a public LBO? Look, first, we think it floors the stock at 28 because you're buying back nearly 40% of the market cap at $28. 20% accretive to 2023 EPS, adjusted EPS, company defined. And it would allow you to distribute starting in 2023 $4.40 of distributable free cash flow. Right? So in the status quo case, this was $3 a share. With this massive recap, this business could start distributing $4.40 of distributable free cash flow in 2023, and that number grows from there. So even if you were to say immediately the stock would trade at just 10 times distributable free cash flow, right, or a 10% dividend yield if that was paid in the form of a dividend, that would imply a $44 stock price. And we think this is all possible by the end of this year. Right? So there is a credible path here for this to be a $44 stock in 2022. Now that $4.40 number will seem high, I think, to people in the context of what you know, is commonly thought of as the earnings power or the cash distribution power of this business, right? which people commonly think of as around $2. And so we wanted to bridge how you get from a $2 EPS to the ability to distribute $4.40 of earnings in 2023. Right? So status quo, we think the adjusted EPS here is around $2. Right, we make the adjustment for the buyback. That obviously results in a higher interest expense because you have more debt. You have a much lower share count because of the 2022 buyback, right? buying back 37% of the shares outstanding. But we're, again, using $28 as the price for that because that's the transaction price. That results in an EPS of nearly $2.50. And then you have a lot of releveraging free cash flow. right? And again, the releveraging free cash flow is the amount of debt capacity that the business has that grows because EBITDA grows, right? So very simply, EBITDA here from 2022 to 2023 is growing by $80 million. And because every dollar of EBITDA growth allows $5.5 of debt capacity at the 5.5 leverage peg, that results in an incremental $440 million of cash that can be distributed to shareholders. And again, there's nothing particularly novel about a leverage peg, right? Lots of companies do it, right? Transime, Charter, et cetera. All it's saying is we are going to keep the financial risk profile of the business constant. Which to us, it seems perfectly plausible. So moving to the intrinsic value here, what does this result in, in terms of intrinsic value? We know we use a higher cost of equity in this case. We're trying to approximate the same whack Right, and because it's a more leveraged case, it does imply a higher cost of equity. So it's an 11% cost of equity here instead of 10 in the status quo case. And you can see here using the same revenue growth rate uh, sensitivities as we've used before, 3%, 4%, and 5%, what the intrinsic value of this business is in 2022. 
you can see in the base case, it's $65, right? That would compare to the $52 in the status quo case. Now, we don't think the stock is going to re-rate to intrinsic value immediately, right? We do think there's a very, very high likelihood that the stock re-rates to at least 10 times distributable free cash flow, so the stock can end up in the 40s. But the intrinsic value here is 65, right? And we don't think it's going to re-rate to $65 immediately. But I think it is worth spending some time on when that might occur. And we think the business can re-rate to intrinsic value in about three years. And so we've rolled forward this analysis to show what that might look like. So we estimate an intrinsic value at year-end 2024, so not quite three years. But we estimate the base case intrinsic value of $80 per share. Now that includes the stock price then and the dividends between now and then. So $80 per share by year-end 2023. That's 3x within three years. So I want to drive in to the two key drivers of this public LBO case, which are leverage and timing. So on leverage, we recognize that five and a half times seems out of the ordinary for a public company, but there's nothing ordinary here. Right? It's not ordinary how dislocated the stock is from intrinsic value, even today. It's not ordinary how misunderstood this business is. It's not ordinary how the business has agreed to a, a take private transaction. Right, so rather than focusing on what's ordinary versus not ordinary, because again, nothing seems ordinary to us in this situation, we'd rather just focus on the fundamentals. Can the business support five and a half times leverage? And here what we'd say is, look, in, in the take private transaction that's been announced, it looks like seven times leverage to us. Right, That's the committed financing that they have in the take private. And so we'd say if the business can support seven times leverage as a private LBO, we don't understand why it would not be able to support five and a half times leverage in a public LBO. We also analyzed ourselves how much EBITDA headroom exists with five and a half times leverage, and does that seem comfortable? And we'd say it seems more than comfortable, right? At five and a half times leverage, EBITDA can drop 45% from current levels, which means EBITDA falling back to where it was 10 years ago. And so all of this points to us as this business having more than adequate ability to be levered at five and a half times net debt to EBITDA. Then on timing, why do we say that we believe this stock can reach its intrinsic value within three years? We look at this and think there are a number of catalyst events that will provide clarity on the future of Nielsen. And we've tried to lay out the most important ones here. Right. Obviously, MRC reaccreditation, continuous growth in the mid-single-digit range, right? a commitment to shareholder distributions. Right. The company has talked about a buyback, but that cash hasn't been returned to shareholders yet. Of, co of course, and probably most importantly, Nielsen One, right? continue to execute on Nielsen One, continue to stay on time um, for that transition in 2024, showing what the normalized free cash flow and margin power is of this business. And then having the major contracts renewed, renewed you know, post this period of kind of high noise and what seems like relatively high animosity between some of the legacy media players and Nielsen. As we look at the timing for these, right, we believe all of these, or almost all of them, kind of get realized within the next two to three years. And so that, that's what gives us comfort that this stock can reach intrinsic value within three years, right? And that intrinsic value in our base case is $80 per share, and that's a 3x from $28 within three years. So I'd want to note here a few considerations for this public LBO model. One, of course, the higher leverage is higher financial risk, right? That goes without saying. But again, we note it's less financial risk than the private LBO at seven times EBITDA. There are UK statutory limitations on distributions that likely require some procedural steps here, right? A capital reduction, possibly a scheme of arrangement. We'd say all of this to us from our work is achievable. Seems to us far less disruptive than a private, a full private takeover. And it seems to us far better for shareholders as a whole. So we summarize this public LBO case as following. 
right, this allows for a nearly 40% buyback at $28 per share. It allows the business to distribute to shareholders $4.40 starting next year, and that grows over the next decade. That to us implies this stock could be close to $45 within a year and close to $80, around $80 in three years. Again, 3x in three years. Again, leads to us the same conclusion, which is why in the world would we want to sell at 28? I want to share a few further thoughts on this $28 transaction price. I started my career in private equity. Um, I think we're somewhat adept at understanding private equity returns. So we took a shot at trying to estimate what the private equity returns look like here for the buying consortium. And we understand, right, that the base private equity model is exit at the same multiple that you enter, right? Not a particularly sophisticated way we think of understanding multiples, but we understand that's how private equity firms at a base level look at this. And we'd say even in that case, right, the entry multiple and exit multiple being 10x EV EBITDA, we think the returns here are pretty extraordinary, mid to high 20s, five-year IRRs. We're almost positive, right, that if this business is taken private, it's likely to come back to the public markets in an IPO. We're pretty sure at that point, the sponsors are not gonna say, hey, you should pay in the IPO just what we paid, which is 10 times EV EBITDA, right? We think the argument's gonna be, look, this is a world-class business that cemented its place as the foundational currency for the media ecosystem. Look at other high-quality info services businesses that have a similar market position in their ecosystems. They trade at a mid-teens EBITDA multiple, and so that's the price that this should be in the IPO, right? Essentially the same argument that we're using now that we think is largely foreseeable, right? Of course, in a few years that will have been de-risked. We think the outcome is largely foreseeable. And if you look at the returns that the private equity consortium generates, if this business does indeed re-rate to a mid-teens EV EBITDA multiple, those returns are extraordinary. Right, high 30s to 40% five-year IRRs. Even if you look at what the IRRs would have been if they could have paid $35, right, in that re-rating case, you get to very attractive returns, right, mid-20s, essentially. So we have always believed that there are billions of dollars on the table here. And that's why we fought so hard for a better deal for all shareholders than the $28 deal that we have before us today, right? And to put a finer point on this, if we compare the private LBO versus the public LBO scenario, we estimate that the private LBO, i.e. us selling at $28 today, transfers $13 billion of value from today's shareholders to the buying consortium, transfers. Value is not getting created, it's getting transferred if we allow a private LBO instead of the public LBO. Now we note you know, that the $28 takeout price is a 60% premium to the pre-deal price. Now on its face, all else equal, 60% premium is a large premium. We don't think that's the right way to look at it. We think you have to view the premium in the context of the share price that the premium is off of. And it's a historically low share price. That's $17.51 outside of the COVID period, right, outside of 2020, that is the lowest share price that this stock has traded on in its history. And so yes, it's a big premium. Yes, it's an above average premium, but it's off of a stock price that was totally dislocated from the value of this business. I think it's even clearer now how dislocated that $17.51 share price was. When you look at the debt financing that the private equity consortium was able to raise for this take private, right? The enterprise value back when the stock was $17.51 was $11.6 billion. 
the private equity consortium was able to raise $11.1 billion of debt financing. Right? In other words, 95% of the entire enterprise value of this business pre-deal was debt financeable. We can't think of another business of this scale and quality for which that is true. And so we put all this together, we look at you know, various forms, various ways, intrinsic value, relative value, you know, what all of those imply in terms of the value of Nielsen today, this is what we see, right? We don't see any numbers that start with a two or a three, right? They're all 40s to 50s to possibly $60 per share. And it's in that context that we say, and we continue to say, that we believe Nielsen's intrinsic value is well north of $40 per share. And $28 isn't even close. Now, even when we sensitize, right, so not just looking at the base case of 4% revenue growth, when we sensitize here and show the ranges, which are 3 to 5% revenue growth, you can see that $28 isn't even close to the bottom end of these ranges, right, not even close to our models when we assume 3% revenue growth. $28 is less than a 3% revenue growth case. So it leads to the question, what do you have to believe to view $28 as full price, as fair value? And of course, you know, there's an infinite number of iterations, different assumptions you can get to try to get to a $28 share price. But we'll, we'll discuss here one um, that leads us to a $28 intrinsic value. You'd have to believe, we think, 2% revenue growth beyond 2022, right? That's revenue growth that may even be sub-inflation, right? So it might be negative real growth. You have to believe flat margins. You have to believe that management is wrong and that the CapEx intensity of this business does not decline to 7.5% of revenue. It stays higher than that, despite undergrowing management's mid-single-digit um, midterm targets, a three times leverage peg, and then no value from capital deployment. Now we'd say, you know what, we don't believe a single one of those assumptions is true. Not one, but you have to believe all of them to conclude that $28 is intrinsic value. Now, one of the, the common pushbacks we've gotten is, okay, if you fight this deal, what about the deal break, right? What about the risk of the stock breaks back down to $18 for share, the free or the unaffected deal price? Look, we'd reiterate here, if the business can support seven times leverage in a public LBO, it can support five and a half times leverage, or seven times leverage in a private LBO, it can support five and a half times leverage in a public LBO. So that should be the fallback case. If there is no deal, for whatever reason, this business should, should pursue a public LBO. And what does that mean? That's a 40% buyback, or close to a 40% buyback, at $28 per share. That should floor the stock by itself. In addition, the shareholders that don't sell in to that buyback would get $4.40 distributed to them starting next year which is a 16% yield on a $28 stock price. We don't think this business is going to trade at a 16% yield. And that yield grows, right? Again, to us, that leaves us unconcerned that the stock is gonna break below 28. And then there's a credible path to $80 per share by 2025, as we've laid out. And the last thing we'd say on this, and why we don't feel fear a deal break, why we don't fear this business being public and staying public and undergoing a public LBO, is this is not a broken business, right? David Kenny, the CEO, we think is an outstanding CEO. He, we think he's exactly the right person to lead this company. He has a clear vision, and one we believe is right with Nielsen One. And Linda Zukakis, the CFO, has transformed the financial integrity of this business. Right? This business hit. EBITDA and EPS guidance for 2020, and that guidance was provided pre-COVID, right? There just aren't that many businesses that were able to navigate COVID 
and hit their pre-COVID profitability numbers. Right? But this business did, and we think it's a testament to their leadership. It's also a testament to the underlying quality of this business. Right? So we look at this and say, this is not a broken business that's in need of a savior. It's a wonderful business that if, if in need of anything, it's in need of time. And being public or private doesn't change how time works. So I'll close where we opened, emphasizing what we believe strongly to be true here. Nielsen has an unmatched ability to solve the hardest measurement problem in media. And when you solve a really difficult problem and you solve it at scale and you solve it uniquely, that to us makes you a world-class business. We believe Nielsen has an intrinsic value of around $50 per share today in the status quo case. And there's a credible path in a public LBO case for us to realize $80 of value within three years, right? 3X within three years. And $28 per share today doesn't come even close to compensating us for the potential of this business. We thank you for your time this morning, and we wish you all well. This concludes today's program. Have a great day.